Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani. Paul, this might be one of the most uh, exciting weekends that just passed when it comes to the movies, man, because Barbie Oppenheimer. Barbenheimer. What, what's it? Bar- Barbieheimer? Barbenheimer. Barbenheimer. Yeah. Just absolutely blew the roof off of the entire industry. I'm so happy to see this out. You know me. I love the movies. I love going to the movies. Seeing the number that they put up, seeing the amount of people at theaters, seeing out sold out tickets. Everyone I talked to at some point was watching one movie or the other. They were trying to find tickets for it. At least in New York City, I had friends in London who were going, I had friends in DC who were going. What an incredible outcome for the industry. It's like a throwback to 2019. So I haven't seen Barbie. Jessica saw it Thursday and loved it. And she was like, I cried and just such an interesting smart take. She loved it. I know you saw it. I loved it. I actually thought it was clever. I thought it was well-written. I thought it was hilarious. I had no problem with it. I know there's there's a couple conservatives out there that were like, this was too woke, but I thought it was amazing. I mean, it did really well. And 155 for US box office, which is the highest opening this year. Big numbers. Also, highest opening ever for female director Greta Gerwig and highest opening weekend for any movie based on a toy exceeding Transformers, I think Dark of the Moon. Isn't it highest opening for a comedy? It could be. I saw numbers that the closest comedy is in like the 85 to $89 million mark. What, like Hangover? One of those movies. But like, I didn't know a lot of the stats that came out. 155, they expected to do 110. They did 182 overseas in addition to that. So... The movie costs 145, not including marketing. Not bad. Does this feel like Mattel's Iron Man? You know, it's funny. So I watched it in Williamsburg and I walked in solo. That's how I do movies when nobody wants to go to the movies with me, but I don't mind it. And uh, I walked in, everyone was decked out, like dressed up, women dressed up. Some men were dressed up, a lot of pink. I, I turned out I was accidentally wearing one of um I have shoes that have like some pink in them. So I felt like I was part of this cultural event. And I think that's what, what it basically is. This weekend was a cultural event. I mean, there were people going nuts over like the throwbacks in the movie. I didn't know half the things that they were talking about, but you could feel that people cared about it. And I really liked that. I, I thought that it was great. Like nostalgia for folks. I think the it's 65% women that were at this event. And I think they were actually expecting it to be way higher women, but turns out, you know, 65% women, 35% men, not a bad mix of crowd. Together with Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer did 80.5 million. And literally you could not find a ticket this weekend Dude, in New York. It was like- I mean, We looked, we tried, right? Yeah, unless you want to sit in the front row. So between the two, 18.5 million tickets were sold in the, in the US, 12.8 million for Barbie. 
a little under six million for Oppenheimer, and it was the largest box office weekend of the year, three hundred and two million. And we had talked a lot about people speculating whether the theatrical business was in permanent decline um, as a result of the pandemic or otherwise. And it just and you've always said time and time again, it's like no, if you put good content out there, people will will see it, right? If it's the same story over and over. People get a little frustrated. Maybe they don't want to spend their money on that. But if it's like an original, smart take that's well done, then the audience is there. And I think one thing to think about here is that, okay, yes, Barbie has a built-in audience. So does Nolan. But they're both original storytelling. It's not based on like a comic book. It's not based on some you know previously written book. I mean, yes, one's a biopic. One is based on a toy but they are original work. And I think that it's just really cool to see this. It's the fourth biggest box office weekend of all time, which I think is impressive because the three prior to that were Avengers Infinity War, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, and Avengers Endgame. I'd say, I think you're doing pretty good if you're not in the Star Wars universe and Marvel universe and you're number four. When we were looking at the numbers, it's just like Endgame did over 155 in its first day. You think <laughs> yeah. it's like crazy, right? What did it do? Like 350 in the first weekend? Right. And, what, and what, has, what happens Oppenheimer was released a week later, right? The numbers might have been even bigger because I, I think for the most part, it was people trying to disc- figure out which one to go to. And if there were potentially more screens of Barbie, maybe we would have seen more Barbie. I think one of the, the one of the not issues with Oppenheimer, but I think people really three hours. It, well, there's that. Okay, so there's that. The three hour mark exactly on the dot. And I think the other thing is that people want to watch this movie in IMAX in seventy millimeters. That's how Christopher Nolan intended it to be watched. And there's not that many theaters that have that ability. So I'm wondering if like a lot of people were just waiting to say, hey, I want to watch this. I know a few people who like want to watch it, so they're going to watch it next week or whenever they can get a ticket for it. Right, exactly. I think people were willing to wait maybe on Oppenheimer because of the experience and the fact that, it, at least in New York, it was sold out everywhere. But based on the content, it does strike me as movies at Target where there's a ton of overlap in the audience, but obviously you know, they're major pictures, so there's got to be some cannibalism there. Yeah. Like maybe... Oppenheimer does five to 10 million more, or, or maybe even more. If, if Barbie comes out on a different weekend, Barbie may have maybe even hit 200, 200 right, yeah. if it had a, the weekend to itself. Yeah, because like Oppenheimer, it was, uh, again, better than expected, showing 80.5 domestic, 94 over, overseas, 60% male. So again, like both these movies were pretty good at like, the balance between the two. And they both have over 90s on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think is good because it's like yes. when you're looking forward to a film, you know, and there's all this hype. Sometimes it's like 65 yeah. or you know, whatever. And you're like, ah, oh, you know, the critics didn't like it. So in this case, the audience and the critics are aligned. So good. And it's great because the box office needs more weekends like that. And it needs to just give people confidence that if they make good stuff, people will see it. And another success, resounding actually success from an indie studio. You were telling me about this Sound of Freedom from Angel Studios yeah. <laughs> just crossed a hundred million on a $15 million budget. And that's Jim Caviezel playing Tim Ballard, who's the uh, founder of Operation Underground, former ICE agent who then goes on a crusade to fight sex trafficking. And so this movie was made on a 
crowdfunded budget, fifteen million dollars. It just crossed a hundred. It's at one hundred eight million domestic, which is just really. I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it's very rare for an indie film with that size budget. It's targeting a certain demographic. Is it's a? Is it like a faith based thriller? Yes. You know, and Jim Caviezel famously played. Jesus in Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. I actually don't even, I don't even feel like I've seen the guy since then. And then he comes in and he comes out of nowhere and he does this like, I've been seeing it like within that demographic being like, this movie's amazing, this movie's amazing. More like, yes, action, thriller, faith-based. Who would have thought that that was an entire demographic? Well, there's also this controversy on social media. People are saying that there was this conspiracy to prevent people from seeing it because you go to certain theaters and there would only be like very limited showings and those showings wouldn't have air conditioning and people would be like, you know, really like having to brave summer heat without air conditioning to watch this movie. And I guess at the end, Jim Caviezel implores people to see it, to support it, to donate. Again, it's being marketed as religious, a valorous act to go see it. It's like showing your faith, pay your money, go see this movie. But still, I mean, it's it's not every day that a movie that with a budget less than 20 million makes over 100. I think regardless, like from a business aspect, from a creative standpoint, like nothing's cooler than make something cheap, blows people out of the water. No matter what, like if there's a market for something and people want to watch it, I'm all for it. The weekend rounded out with that movie, plus you have Mission Impossible for the second weekend. So you've got a lot of things to be able to watch in the theater right now, and it's cool. I mean, I've been in the theater a lot of times in the last two weeks. I would have gone in the theater three times, which I'm very excited about. Plus tonight. Plus tonight, I'm going to Oppenheimer, which I'm a little bummed because it's not the IMAX 70 millimeter, but uh, my cousin's got an extra ticket and beggars can't be choosers, man. I'll go watch that at Battery Park. Yeah, so, um, you know, episode 211, we talked about AMC was launching their Sightline pilot program, which was going to offer differentiated dynamic pricing. So if you're going to see a movie after four and you wanted a good seat, that was going to be two bucks more. But if you wanted to sit in the front row, that might have been $2 less. And... (laughs) I think at the time, fans were pretty strongly against it. I think you and I were like, hey, I, I guess we get the economic rationale because this dynamic pricing exists in other industries like live events, concerts, transportation, but it seemed antithetical to how theaters that had been existing. It's just so infuriating that those seats even exist because nobody wants to sit in them. I had to watch it when I went to see the Blackberry movie and it took me like 15, 20 minutes to adjust my brain to what I was watching. And and I think the biggest complaint of this weekend, by the way, was that no seats available except the front row. No seats available except for the front row. And it, it doesn't make sense that they got to figure it out. I get it. I get it's a real estate thing. But you got to like figure out a way to make this comfortable. And I think that's what AMC is now thinking of. Well, that's what this is. So they're scrapping the sightline plan. They're, they're going to do away with that. And they said they were going to come out with a new initiative, which is going to upgrade the front row or the front two rows to make it a better viewing experience. I don't know. Maybe it would just have to be like like a zero gravity thing <laughs> or like a lounge chair. Because I don't yeah. know how you... You don't want to crane your neck for that long. There's only one theater I've ever been to where I think it was like an Odeon in London. And basically the whole wall was the screen and it was like auditorium seats. But then there was a big drop off. You still had like a good enough view and, and they left like space between the first row and the screen. 
Now, granted, I mean, how do you get away with that? Maybe if you just plan to go higher. I don't know how it works from like a, a design standpoint, but I think it's time. We got to get rid of this front row seat thing. Like People should want to sit in the front row, just like at a concert or like when you're watching a basketball game, you want to sit in the front row. Nobody wants to sit in the front row at a movie theater. Not yet. Not yet. Well, that's up to AMC to That's, figure out. Yeah, maybe they figure this out. All right, let's take a quick break and switch gears back to soccer. So, Mesh, I know you're a soccer guy or football, as they say, in the rest of the world. And you um, watch it every weekend. And it's no question that football slash soccer is growing in popularity in the U.S. MLS is probably one of the fastest growing. I mean, there's always these stats about like fastest growing sports leagues. Obviously, the NFL is very established. NBA is doing really well. But I think MLS is right on that next echelon ascending. And they just landed the best soccer player in the world. Messi has joined Inter Miami. Miami. And it's crazy. It's crazy because, yes, he's at the latter stage of his career, but he's, you know, he's 36, but he's also, you know, the best player fresh off winning a World he, Cup. Yeah, he just and won a Inter World Miami's Cup. the last place team. Don't even have a permanent stadium. They have a 19,000 capacity stadium in Fort Lauderdale that they're looking to upgrade. David Beckham is a part owner, but it's just such a coup because this guy is a soccer legend, royalty, and walks on water, and he's coming to not necessarily the most competitive soccer league, the MLS. And typically, while there is precedent for this, like David Beckham and Wayne Rooney and Zlatan, like other players have finished their careers in the US, Messi turned down a lot more money Apparently, one point six billion from Al Halal in Saudi Arabia yeah. to come to. Would you rather? Here, here's the thing: Would you rather live in Saudi or would you rather live in Florida? This is the question that most people get asked, and I'm pretty sure, like for for a Messi, his boy David Beckham, why wouldn't you want a chance at actually like one? You get to live in Miami, so maybe that was part of the appeal. Like, hey, I get to live in Miami. I get to be in the U.S. I'm familiar with the system. You probably here. already had a vacation yeah, house in Miami anyway. Maybe a vacation house in Miami. And then two, it's like a lot of these guys like the U.S. They like to go to L.A. They like to go to New York, whatever it might be. It's close to Europe. But also there's a exciting fan base. Is it closer than Saudi? It's probably about the same, the same yeah, distance. Right? I, yeah, but I think it's more like both will have enough money to pay. But I think in Messi's case, it's like, does he actually want to do something great? for soccer and football and the community globally. And I think MLS just has a lot more potential there, especially with a guy like Beckham, who at the end of Beckham's career retired, like before he retired, he went to the LA Galaxy, got paid over 200 million to play there for five years and really helped like establish- That was like 16 years ago. Yeah, like established yeah. this culture. This guy made like a long-term bet and he still like got loaned out to AC Milan and stuff during that time. But he got in his contract, it was the option for him to buy an expansion team after he retired for $25 million, And that's what he did. In this case, he called it Inter-Miami, which is cool because it's a little bit of a play to the like more European clubs. Then you bring the biggest football player in the world who, to your point, you said earlier, Yes, even though he's on the towards the end of his like, you know, super competitive career, he just won a World Cup. 
God knows how. He just won a World Cup. I mean, he's better mentally, and he's still as magical. He's maybe not 19-year-old Dynamo. Seven-time Golden Boot winner, 800 goals, four-time Champions League winner, 10 La Liga titles, an Olympic gold. I mean, he's just playing at a very high level, which you can't really say about Ronaldo when he went to Saudi. And he's been on the list of top three highest-paid athletes for the past, I don't know, five, ten years. He made an estimated 130 million last year, so including endorsements. So it's not like he needs the money. But 1.6 billion, apparently for three or four years, um, is what he turned down. And so now, granted, he's getting just to do a little bit of the deal overview. And this is all what's publicly reported. He's getting 50 to 60 million annually. It's a two and a half year deal, so he's going to make between 125 and 150 million to play. In addition, because Apple has a 10-year streaming deal with MLS, he's getting a percentage of the streaming package, the soccer package, the premium package, which is like $99 a year. If you have Apple TV Plus, he's going to get a percentage of sales on that, which makes sense because, you know, he's a gravitational force in soccer. So people like me who may not necessarily be where soccer is not in our top echelon of sports, maybe we'll be like, okay, well, Messi's here. We know who Messi is. He's a household name. We'll we'll get the MLS package now. Totally. Um, And then he's also getting revenue sharing from his Adidas deal. And he's been a long time Adidas athlete, but he's worn Nike sneakers until I guess now he'll be wearing Adidas. Look, I think it's a cool move. I think it's it's a unique move. Like he has the, I mean, the fact that you're getting a percentage from Apple. I mean, it just goes to show like more content is happening into sports besides and we've talked about this before, besides just watching live sports. I mean, Netflix has the Formula One docuseries. They've got Breakpoint on tennis. They just released quarterback. Like, you know, Amazon has got it's all or nothing where they do the each season is on a different premiership team. So what could we see that could come out potentially out of this with more you have Beckham, you have Messi, you have these high profile MLS players. I think it's really interesting. I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. From a business perspective, it's like a market anomaly, right? You have the U.S., which is the largest GDP, huge market, very fervent sports fan base. But football, which is the world's most popular sport, is underpriced in the U.S., right? It's just not the number one sport. And then you have these tech titans like Apple who want to build their streaming products. And one way to do that is with sports, which have been incredibly lucrative for broadcast companies and streaming companies for a long time. Makes sense. Why not just land the biggest player in the world? And I think that this is something because Messi also gets, I think he gets an opportunity to purchase an equity stake in Inter Miami. Yes. Uh, I think this is something that all the teams had to sign off on. And another interesting quirk with the MLS, which I think makes a lot of sense is that you're allowed to carve out up to three players from your salary cap. So like you have a salary cap, but then your league that's aggressively trying to grow, you want to give teams, and this is in this case, like a last place team, an opportunity to open up the checkbook to become competitive because that helps the whole league. Yeah, and it's interesting too, because I read that Messi has a similar deal to Beckham in, in the sense that when he retires, he also has the option to buy an expansion team. And from what I also read, you know, the team was valued, Beckham bought it for $25 million. It's now valued at $600 million. 
And now with everything that's happening here, could this in a few years be worth a billion? Which now makes me start thinking about why players potentially come retire. Like older players come, you're the Michael Jordan thing now. You're like becoming an owner of teams and like helping push you know, bigger stars and more talent towards this. Because I think the issue has always been before, like MLS just didn't have enough talent. The U.S. has some of the best athletes in the world when it comes to training them at a young age. I mean, that's what I think Europe. And but then they go to Europe. They, yeah. they go to Europe. Uh, and, I, and I say, well, they go to the NBA or they go play baseball or they go play tennis. Oh, yeah. I thought you meant soccer right? players. But, yeah. but the soccer one is like they do it really well from a young age, but then they go, you know, they're playing in premiership or, you know, other European leagues or whatever it might be. And I think, is this potentially a chance with the value of these clubs going up, more high profile names coming in, more like views on this does that help more people want to go into soccer versus you know other sports who knows it might take some time but i think we saw just recently you know you had arsenal and man united played in new york and this thing everyone was just talking about it amongst like big soccer fans and i i knew a few people who wanted to go see it my sister went to go watch arsenal play the mls stars in dc i mean we, i you can you can kind of feel there's a lot more interest in the sport in this country. And let's see what happens. I think a lot will be determined with how the U.S. plays in the next World Cup. Can they get better and better and closer to getting to that, hey, we are like a top five team in the world? Yeah, and, and another another angle on this. So Messi, longtime Barcelona player, did the past two years at PSG. I think there was no secret that things didn't really go according to plan at PSG and he was going to be, you know, be leaving his contract. So it was a short period where there was some speculation as to whether he might go back to Barcelona, which doesn't really have the money to pay him or go to Saudi. And so inter Miami was like the third possible destination right, right. and it's great. Big, big coup for them. The other thing about it is like, he can do whatever he wants to do. He's proven everything. Yeah. Got the World Cup. He's got the most the famous man in the world, medal. right? Or like top three most famous Seriously. people in the world. Huge star. And like, why not go to the unofficial capital of Latin America, right? And just like dominate, <laughs> yeah, have yeah. the next stage of your career and then buy a team and and grow the sport in in a country where there's probably a little bit of, there's definitely upside. opportunity there's for upside. soccer to become. Yeah, yeah there's upside. Yeah, and, and and just to close on this, I mean, I saw a video of David Beckham when you know Messi scored his goal or at the end of the goal, and there was highlights all over Twitter. I mean, he shot a free kick and made it and just looked phenomenal. Oh yeah, um, no, his debut against his debut, yeah, against uh, Cruz Azul, scored a beautiful free kick, and you can see Beckham there, tears of joy. Uh, and then there's later a uh, TikTok video of Victoria Beckham and David Beckham doing karaoke and she's singing Spice Girls songs and they look like they're having the time of their life. And, you know, David Beckham, impressive career, man. I mean, this guy has just stayed relevant. He stayed important in, in the game of soccer. He still looks damn good. And um, look, look what he's done. I, th I thought that was a really good move, bringing Messi over to Miami. Yeah. Yeah, huge. All right, well, let's take a break, and we'll come back and talk about something a bit different. We'll talk about uh, the FTC investigation into OpenAI. So, Mesh, I know um, 
one of your business pursuits is leveraging AI, how it can impact Web3 and technology and, and, and everything that we consume. There's no shortage of materials on how revolutionary AI can be. And anyone that's not living under a rock has probably read articles or heard about how AI is going to make XYZ career irrelevant. So like, don't tell your kids to go to school for this because yeah. it's all going to be done by AI or whatever, whether it's coding or law or medicine or whatever, writing, acting. So AI has this incredible potential to create, to make our lives potentially more efficient, to make us potentially obsolete. And it all feels like we're on the edge of this new era. And it's even got the stock market optimistic because of the increases, the potential increases to productivity. And I've always been one fan of technological advancement, although I do think that you have to have guardrails around it. it. It's a hard balance to get right. And usually there's some missteps along the way. In this case, OpenAI, who makes a product ChatGPT, if you haven't heard of it, they released their fourth version, which is just incredibly powerful, scans billions of pieces of data to basically create a neural network to learn off of examples of things that have been done in the past, and in particular with respect to a particular prompt. So you can say, you know, I want to write an article about dogs, and then it'll scan the internet for things about dogs. And you can you'd say like dogs and and particularly like attack dogs or cute dogs or whatever, you can give it different directions <laughs> yeah. and then it'll write or create, you know, and then they have image-based AI. It, predi- it essentially predicts. Well, that's the thing. Does it? It uses an enormous data set to like look for patterns it, and exactly. potentially yeah. predict. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it's like who's watching the data set. Sometimes the inputs um, can be incorrect and it, I don't know if it's fact-checking and... Basically, there are concerns regarding you know how it's getting access to data, whether it's using people's data, whether it's using it with permission, whether they're pulling content that's owned by others and reproducing it in a way that would require a license without getting a license. So whether there's like some unauthorized copyright infringement, data security breaches. So there's a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah. In the past, Regulators have said, well, once an industry or once a product reaches a certain critical mass or has like a large um, footprint, then it's time to regulate it. But, you know, we can allow things to experiment in their nascent stages. In this case, the FTC, which is chaired by Lena Khan, is saying, well, we want to be a little bit more proactive with respect to open AI. And they, a few weeks ago, sent a 20 page letter with a bunch of questions to Sam Altman at OpenAI saying, hey, we're going to launch an investigation into yeah. your your policies, in particular, your data collection and privacy policies. Yeah. And so like just the three main things that are important to remember, what are the main issues? And you brought up one, which is we don't know or have any control of what is being fed into these LLM, these language learning models, which data is being given to them and who controls how to filter that data. We, we have no say into that, nor do we know what's going into that. So we don't know what public data is going into it, what you know, what's on Reddit, what's on Twitter, blah, blah, blah. The second issue is that there's no attribution. So we don't know anything that it pumps back out to us. We don't know what it's basing anything on. So there's no attribution of work or you know what research paper it read to potentially like predict something, et cetera. And then the third issue is that you have hallucinations, which it, it just makes stuff up 
very convincingly. So you don't actually know if it's telling the truth or not, unless you're like an expert in the subject that you asked for. So all three legit issues. And any one of them could potentially be fatal to something that you're gonna build the next economy around. To totally. I think it seems like the right time to do this because one, people are nervous, like why even create anything or care about what you're making if you're not gonna get credit for it or you're not gonna get paid for it, especially in this like, where do we go with the web? Like bard.google.com, are we just gonna ask search questions and it's gonna pump us stuff versus us being able to like look at different things? Um, and I think the, the good thing is that Sam Altman has been very open about this industry needs to be regulated and this they don't wanna make the same mistakes they wanna make that happen with like the social media era where you got into all those issues with Cambridge Analytica. And I think that's a good thing. At least they're saying, hey, open this up. We need to be regulated. This is changing the internet. Let's figure this out. So that's a positive. Yeah, I mean, I, I whether he means that or whether he's actually going to play ball, and it's like that's kind of the thing you say to keep you know the PR yeah. police happy. Um, there is not a ton of transparency as to how they built the product right, and like right. what it does. It's not and very open. You can understand that from a from a business perspective because it's like, well, he has competitors. It's a very sought after business that all the tech companies want to be a part of. So he can't just necessarily give away the special sauce for purposes of appeasing, you know, public regulators. But so he wants to like walk that balance of being transparent enough to keep the government happy without giving away the value and enabling his competitors to do exactly what he's done uh, because it is truly revolutionary. But the risks, you know, you read about these tech CEOs that say this could be, you know, an extinction level threat. It could literally be the end of our civilization as we know it. If you allow AI to control things like weapons and launch codes and drones and things, you know, it's, you know, it's Terminator, right? It's Skynet. So, those things can be really concerning. And so, yes, he said he wants to play ball with the FTC, which is great. But I And I don't know that this is a coincidence. Maybe they're related, maybe they're not. But the OpenAI head of trust and safety just stepped down last week. So David Wilner, who had been at Facebook and Airbnb, said that he's leaving. He's transitioning from an employee to being more of like a consultant slash advisor to OpenAI. Yeah. And what he said is, hey, like this hit thing has been all encompassing. It's like beyond full time. It's literally like his, the amount of work and the amount of questions and the amount of scrutiny that OpenAI is getting is just more than he wants to take on at this stage of his life. So he's going to go do something else or maybe just transition. Yeah. Or it might be and he's in a better position to advise if he's an independent consultant versus like, I don't know. I'm, I'm, you always get curious about that. Type or of he's stuff. got something to hide, right? Like that's the other thing. It's like, okay, well maybe, maybe they did cut some corners. Maybe there wasn't a lot of oversight. And so he's got to be the fall guy. I, I don't know. I mean, there yeah. could be any number of explanations. It's interesting. Cause I think one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, AI has existed for a long time. It's been basically in our everyday use cases, whether you're playing video games or you're scrolling on like streaming apps or, you know, a, a lot, I mean, like even spell checking your grammar or whatever, or spell checking your documents. Or even like the song recommendations. Yeah, all of that is AI based, right? Because it's essentially just like, you know, these it's machine learning and then it's uh, uh, this 
computer that's suggesting things versus a person. And there's a lot of really, really amazing use cases. I think obviously what happened here is that ChatGPT just blew up the world in terms of like, whoa, this is new. There's someone that we can talk to. And that has just caused this massive eruption of like, what is the potential of all this? Because, you know, and how can we use this even more like for productivity? I've been listening to a lot about like how AI can potentially like make ads more efficient and make it more catered to each individual. I mean, there's a lot of potential ways like companies are going to be making money off of this, but it is very clear that in order for, in this case, like the chat GBTs and the bards to learn, they need data and data sets are basically what's available on the internet. And that needs to be protected. Like there's no copyright law around this right now. Well, there's no copyright protection in facts, right? Something that's factual can't be copyrighted. Copyright only attaches to creative works, but there's still data. There's rights rights of publicity. There's data. Like just because you know something doesn't mean that you can necessarily, that you want it to be shared, right? Or that you want it to be public. Yeah. For example, let's say I'm a language learning model Paul and I want to start writing a new script. In this case, I'm a robot or whatever I am. I'm consuming like every single Quentin Tarantino script. And then I'm going to, Paul prompts me with like, hey, we want a setting here, you know, at this era, et cetera. This is a bit of the story. And then I'm going to basically spit out a new script based on the script that I learned out of. You know, what is that? Like, who gets credit for that? Like, I'm using Quentin Tarantino's material. My new material is original, but it's all based on his work. And and I think that's where it gets tricky. Right. And if you're a robot, does that even qualify? Because it's got to really be like human authorship. Right, right. There's so many interesting questions as far as that and attribution. I think attribution would go a long way and say, hey, this is what I looked at. You can check it yourself. These are the sources. I think that would go a long way to quelling a lot of people's fears, but my doomsday scenario could still exist if if you let them drive cars, control machines, control weapons. Like and that's where I always go to this, and I <laughs> we're not there yet, but we could get there quickly. I think those are guardrails that we're gonna see, and well, we we, and we could get into it forever, but it's like, is it more human error that makes those things worse, or is it potentially AI? And I, but I think regardless. Guardrails need to be set in place. Regulation needs to come in. You know, we'll probably see more and more lawsuits. We'll probably see, you know, we're seeing high profile copyright lawsuits around this of folks that think that their work is being infringed upon. I think uh, important to see like how this time do they get it right? Or at least do they figure out how to figure out regulation and not create the mess that social media created? There's no easy answer and it's not um, there's no silver bullet. It's a lot of trial and error. And sometimes you overcorrect and then the industry has to grow back. And sometimes you, do, you don't do enough and there's more complaints and lawsuits. But either way, it's a balance. And it's good to see the FTC um, getting involved and Sam saying that he wants to be uh, cooperative. Let's see. We'll keep everyone posted. I'm glad that we get to talk about this. It, it will be exciting to see what happens. But that's our show for this week, folks. Hope you enjoyed. Paul, thanks for the breakdowns as always. Make sure you go check out Barbie and Oppenheimer. I'm sure it's going to be hard to still get a ticket in the coming weeks, but um, very, very happy for the U.S. box office. Subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Better Call Paul the podcast, TikTok, and Instagram. Follow me at Meshlikani on Twitter. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week.
Thanks, everyone.